Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Joseph Pierce joins us today. He is director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute and author of biographies of Shakespeare, Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Hilaire Belloc, and others. His new book is Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. That is our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Pierce. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. On this show, we dive right into the book. Uh, First, you say true England. Uh, Can you tell us what is false England? Yes, so basically true England is that uh, aspect of England and English history which has been true to the truth himself. In other words, I'm, take, I'm taking objectivity to, to, to be something which uh, directly con- connects to, to Jesus Christ. There we are. Uh, that, that, you know something? That is a refreshingly clear and direct answer to, to a nice historiographical question. Thank you. <laughs> okay. My pleasure. So now you approach, actually, you approach this history. It it sort of takes off on what what, what you just said, assuming that England was, is, and will be part of a, quote, cosmological passion play. What do you mean by that? Well, basically, the whole of reality plays itself out in God's omnipresence. So although we experience it in terms of time, uh, for God, there's no past and there's no future. There's just that which is present. And when we understand things in that way, we see that the whole of history, including the whole of English history, is played out in God's presence. Um, and uh, so we can see that, that Shakespeare is alive, for instance, not merely in the sense that England would not be what she is without him. So he's very much alive in that in that sense. But also, you know, he is living in God's presence as we are living in God's presence, and as, and as Alfred the Great is living in God's presence. This is the sort of mysticism we see in the great, the, the great Christian mystics and in poems such as T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. You, you go to the fact that, the, the, well, uh, the legend, really, of the Christ child brought to England's shores. What is that legend? Yeah, so basically there are a couple of legends that surround the figure of St. Joseph of Arimathea. And I'm obviously not claiming that these are necessarily uh, true in terms of fact that they actually happened. I think that at the very least, however, we can say that they're an example of wishful thinking. They are the reflection of the faith of the English people that they want it to be true. Of course, wanting something to be true doesn't make it true. But the two legends are, first of all, that St. Joseph of Arimathea brought the Christ child to England. Um, 
obviously in, in the early centuries of the first millennium. Uh, uh, and the, the basis, the historical basis for that, however flimsy it would be, is that there was certainly uh, quite a lot of trade between the southwest of England, Cornwall, the Cornish mines, uh, and the Mediterranean. And if St. Joseph of Arimathea was a successful businessman and trader, it's possibly travel, but it's unlikely. Um, so that's the first thing. So, for instance, uh, William Blake's very famous poem, uh, uh, Jerusalem, you know, which, which begins with, and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green and was the holy lamb of God in England's pleasant pastures seen? That relates to this legend of hmm. St. Joseph of Arimathea bringing the Christ child to England. And the other legend, which is also very important from the perspective of, of Western culture, irrespective of whether it was a historical fact, is that it's said that Sir Joseph of Arimathea led the first group of Christian missionaries to England in 63 AD, bringing with him uh, the chalice, which, depending upon which version you, you, you believe, was either the chalice used at the Last Supper or the chalice uh, that collected the blood from Christ when uh, the, 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 his body was pierced on the cross, or uh, that the, the same chalice was used for both. And that, of course, be, that is now known as the Holy Grail, and all of the Arthurian legends, which, of course, are so much a part of, of our collective Christian psyche, arise from that story. So these two stories are the very birth, if you like, of, uh, of uh, the Christian presence in, in, in England uh, have had a profound impact on Western culture. What was the martyrdom of St. Alban and why is it important to true England? Yes, St. Alban's the proto-martyr of England. In other words, he's the first um, first martyr during the Roman persecutions. So this is technically, there's a chapter in my book called The England Before England, because, of course, uh, England comes from the, uh, the Germanic tribe, the Angles, Angler land or Angle land, um, and they didn't arrive until the, uh, until the 5th or 6th century. This is before that. We don't know for certain which of the Roman persecutions of the early church uh, the, the, the martyrdom of St. Alban belongs to, um, but certainly, you know, from the early centuries. And he was, mur he was martyred in a place called Verulanium, uh, a Roman city just north of what is now London. Uh, and it's now called St. Albans. It's named after the saint himself. So he's the first of the English martyrs. That, that's why he's significant. All right. What about the Pelagian episode in pre-England? Yeah, so the, so the heretic Pelagius, uh, uh, he was British, uh, he was English, so it, it was a heresy which spread throughout Christendom but was particularly powerful in England. Um, and uh, Pelagianism is actually very pertinent. It's not, we're not talking about something very vague here. Uh, it's basically what we would now call the, the self-help religion. Uh, mm. You know, if you go to Barnes and Noble, you'll see, you know, shelves and shelves of self-help books. And that's effectively Pelagianism. Yeah, what Pelagius taught is that you, all you have to do is to read the gospel, listen to the words of, of Jesus Christ and do it. You do it, but you, you get to heaven by the triumph of your own will. In other words, you don't need grace. You don't need supernatural help. If you don't need grace, you don't need supernatural help. You don't need the sacraments. You don't need the church. Uh, you just do it yourself. So that was the heresy. It's very, very powerful in, in, in early England. And uh, was, we, we see it uh, uh, in Bede, pays a, in his Ecclesiastical History of the English-Speaking People. Bede pays a lot of attention to, to Pelagianism. 
And also we can see the first two parts of the English epic poem, Beowulf, as basically a dialogue or a dialectic against uh, Pelagianism. Moving forward, what about St. Augustine? What was he doing there? Well, again, uh, we have to distinguish, of course, between the better known of the St. Augustines, uh, St. Aug Aug Augustine of Hippo. Uh, this is St. Augustine of Canterbury, yeah. and he was sent to England uh, by the, the great St. Gregory the Great, the Pope, uh, to convert uh, the pagans to, uh, to, to Christianity, to Catholic Christianity. But we do have to remember that there was already a Catholic presence in England at this time. This is the end of the 6th century, so 597. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the, the first Christians arrived during the 1st century. We know that the, 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 the chapel to the Virgin in Glastonbury is, was considered ancient in the 3rd century. It probably dates from the 1st century. So um, things got confused and mixed when the Romans left because then these pagan tribes moved in. And you had Christians, pagans uh, in, an, uh, un, in, a, in a messy situation. But what St. Augustine of Canterbury did was came in, he converted the pagans so that England could once again be a fully Christian nation and not a, not a divided nation. What was Alfred the Great's role in bringing, bringing this true, true England to what? sort of consolidating it? Well, Alfred the Great is, is, is a crucial person in, 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 in English history. And according to Hilaire Belloc, who was a, you know, a great historian in his own right, was a crucial figure in, in, in the history of Christendom, in the history of Europe, because uh, uh, Belloc believes that if St. Alfred the Great had not been successful in turning back the, 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 the Viking wave, the, the, the pagan Danish wave that was sweeping across England, if he had not turned that back following the Battle of Ethandun, um, that um, England would have fallen to paganism and with the threat from Islam from the, from the south and then uh, this powerful Viking paganism in the north that perhaps, you know, Christendom may not have survived. So uh, according to Belloc, at least, St. Alfred the Great's victory against the pagan Danes was, was, was crucial to the survival of, of, of Christianity. Belloc and Tolkien differed on the, the nature or value of the Norman conquest. What were, what were their contrasting takes on that 1066 event? Yeah, I mean, I find this very interesting. You know, I've written uh, books on both uh, Tolkien and Belloc. So they're, they're, they're both people that I admire greatly, but they did not see eye to eye on this. So for Belloc... Um, the, the 1066, the Battle of Hastings, the Norman Conquest was, was beneficial because it brought England into the fullness of European Christendom. And for Belloc, who's very much a Francophile, the fullness of Christendom is somehow connected to the nation of France, the eldest daughter of the church. Um, but for Tolkien, England was a profoundly uh, Catholic country prior to the conquest and did not need to be conquered in order to keep it so. And in actual fact, if you look, and so I, I tend to be on the side of, of, of Tolkien in this dispute. If you actually look at the history of Anglo-Saxondom, so the 500 years uh, or so prior to the conquest, um, there were there were also it's a land of saints. There's a the chapter in my book called "A Land of Saints." There were kings that that, that that are martyred: King Edmund, the martyr, princesses, and 
who become saints and, and, and nuns and establish ab abbeys. And, and the last king, or king right up to 1066 prior to uh, the Norman Conquest was St. Edward the Confessor. So a, a king of England who's actually a saint is brings uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon mm. England to a conclusion. And there was a Marian apparition in 1061, five years before the conquest, um, which would actually become the most um, prominent Marian shrine uh, in Christendom for centuries. So I see that Anglo-Saxon England, when it when it dies, if you like, um, uh, with the Norman conquest, it's like a supernova. It sort of dies uh, in a blaze of glory. Hmm. The Norman invasion didn't have any religious component. Is, am I right about that? No, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't motivated by religion. It was motivated by claims of who was the legitimate heir to the throne following the death of St. Edward the Confessor. And William of Normandy claimed he had a right to the throne. Howard Godwinson of England claimed he had a right to the throne. So no, it wasn't. What, in practical terms, however, um, William was absolutely ruthless in ensuring that his control was absolute. Yeah. So he he replaced all of the senior members of the hierarchy, the Catholic hierarchy, with his own men. In other words, with Norman Frenchmen, with one exception. Um, basically, he made the, the English church French to ensure its loyalty. So it, it, it became religious, but not in a good sense, in the sense that the secular power imposed its will upon the church, and that's never a good thing. And Harold... Is it Harold II who was the last Anglo-Saxon king? Yeah, Harold Godwinson. Yeah. I'm not sure. The English kings are a bit a bit complicated because there weren't there wasn't always one king of England. There were yeah. different tribes. Yeah. But King Harold Godwinson was the final king of England, and he 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 didn't try to exert that kind of control on the church. No, not at all. In fact, the the, the main criticism against his predecessor. Because you know, Howard Godson was only on the throne for a few months because Edward the Confessor died earlier in 1066. But one of the, the sort of, shall we say, secular criticisms of Edward the Confessor is he was so holy that he was too deferential to his subjects and therefore was not decisive in action. So if anything, you would say that the, the, the last Christian king of England, Edward the Confessor, was uh, 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 too lenient. He was too... too, too yeah. uh, too concerned with being holy, uh, not there's anything wrong with that, and therefore that might have messed up um, his ability to rule well. I mean, this is an argument that obviously historians have. He was certainly yeah. a holy man. Whether or not he was a good king is, is open to, to debate, but he was the opposite of William the Conqueror, who was complete power, uh, I would say the power maniac. He, had, he, he was absolutely uh, ruthless in ensuring that no one could question his power once he conquered England. Yeah, I think that's why Carlyle liked him. So uh, <laughs> he's got a chapter on on a section on William uh, uh, in in one of his books. But uh, now Harold was a great defender against the pagan Vikings, right? Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, again, I said that that Anglo Saxondom goes down in a blaze of glory with the Marian apparition with the saint on the throne, but it also went down in a blaze of glory militarily. Because what we have to understand is that uh, William of Normandy was in league with King Harold Hardwadi, who was the, the, the Norwegian uh, pagan Viking king. 
Uh, and uh, so they invaded in the north of England, in Yorkshire, a 200, over 200 miles north of London. So, you know, the, Harold had to march his army 200 miles north. He then fought a heroic battle against a heroic warrior king. There's actually a, a Norse saga called King Harold's saga about King Harold Hadradi. Um, and, uh, you know, he was a giant, a great warrior. So King Harold Godwinson's army defeat King Harold Hadradi's army in a great historic victory, only to discover that, uh, that, that the Norman army had, had, had arrived at Hastings on the yes. south coast. So then, having battled weary, his men had to march not just all the way back to London, but a further 50 miles, the 250 miles, having already fought a battle. And then they fight the Normans, and by all by all accounts, had did very well, um, and wasn't you know it's a difficult battle for, for 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 William to win. So, you know, it was a defeat, but it was a very heroic defeat under those circumstances. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. How did the assassination of Thomas A. Beckett come off in, in, in English society? Well, how did it ripple well, through English society? Yeah, I think, I think basically this is an example of, uh, should we say, secular overreach. And the, 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 the king, uh, you know, in English history, as in most countries' history, there's always this struggle between uh, the secular power and the church. The secular power wants to bring the church under its sway and wants to be able to control it. Doesn't like something that powerful that's, that it's not in control of. Um, so this is the, 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 the same uh, during the 12th century. So, um, so Thomas of Becket is murdered, uh, allegedly apparent on the, on the, on the, uh, the orders of the king. Uh, he's murdered at the altar in Canterbury Cathedral. But the whole of Christendom is outraged. Now we need to remember that by this time, you know, martyrdoms, <laughs> were were extremely rare. Um, uh, you know, obviously we have Islam uh, and, and that sort of struggle. Um, but within Europe, uh, Europe now was by this stage was was fully Christian, and and, and the idea of a of a, a Christian bishop, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, nonetheless being uh, murdered uh, at, because he's a holy priest, and that was the, that was the problem, is that he was that he was basically standing firm. Uh, on, on, the, on behalf of the rights of the church against the rights of the secular power. So the, the outrage of Christendom meant that the king had to basically make public penance uh, and it ensured, at least for a while, that the secular power in England kept their hands off the church. You refer to, as you go through the centuries, you refer to, quote, England's love affair with the Blessed Virgin Mary, can you describe that for us? Yes, well, I think it probably, I mean, the oldest known chapel in England, which probably dates back to the first century, is at Glastonbury in Sussex. 
Um, all sorts of connections in legend with the Holy Grail and, and King Arthur and what have you. But, um, but, but in terms of historical fact, the oldest known Christian chapel in England was dedicated to the Virgin, dates back to the first century. And that, if you like, if you like sets the scene. Uh, and then, you know, a thousand years later, Almost exactly. Uh, if we if we take the date of the first Christian missionaries arriving in 63 AD, then uh, almost a thousand years later, in 1061 AD, we have this Marian apparition at Walsingham, and this becoming a major shrine that every English king uh, and Scottish kings and French noblemen and people from across Europe would, would come to on the Walsingham Way, like the like the uh, uh, the Camino. Um, it was known as the Milky Way because there were so many pilgrims on it. So if you have this Marian presence from this site of an apparition at the heart of your culture, uh, it's no surprise that the English had a great love affair with the Virgin Mary. And for instance, um, there are are shrines to the Blessed Virgin all over over England. And uh, I I did have the figures somewhere. I can't quote them to you now. But in terms of uh, popularity, there were more churches dedicated to St. Mary the Virgin in England in terms of proportion to other saints than any other country. So there there was this deep devotion to the Virgin Mary on the part of the English people. We've got a couple of Marys who are important in the 16th century. Uh, They come after something you call the Tudor Terror. What was the Tudor Terror? Well, you know, unlike, the, I, th- I think one of the mistakes, one of the big mistakes in history is to talk about the Reformation, um, because that, that wasn't the Reformation. There were actually three primary Reformations, and they were all very different from each other. There's the Protestant Reformation, of course, led by Luther and Calvin and others, which, um, although it got very involved in politics, and although secular rulers used it for their own purposes, was theological in nature. Um, there and there was the Catholic response to that, which is sometimes called the Counter-Reformation, but which, which was very much a Reformation. Uh, you know, the, the Jesuits come from that period, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, the Scouse Carmelites, St. Philip Neri, St. Charles Borromeo. So that was, a, uh, and of course, the, the Renaissance blooming. Um, so you have this uh, Catholic Reformation. But in England, the English Reformation is a different thing altogether. In the English Reformation, um, the Secular power, the secular ruler, Henry VIII, uh, by seeking alliance with the most avaricious of his noblemen, uh, ripped uh, the church away from the English people against the will of the English people. Um, And they only got away with it, basically, because Henry bought his his nobility by offering them the church land. If you you come in with me, you'll have... Thousands of acres of this abbey land will be given to you. These become the lords of the manors that, that were actually the, 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 the abbeys and, and, and monasteries and convents. So uh, there were, throughout the 16th century, there's uprising over after uprising after uprising by the English people to try to restore uh, the, the Catholic faith. So um, the English Reformation was basically a, a plutocratic coup mm. <laughs> on the part of the secular power against the will of the people. Hmm. Uh, his, his, his daughter, Mary, she doesn't deserve that bloody Mary epithet, does she? Well, I, I, I certainly seek to address the, uh, 
the uh, propagandistic impression that she's the only bloody person here. If we're talking about the Tudors, you have Henry VIII before before her, Edward VI before her, and 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 uh, Queen Elizabeth I, who I call bloody best in the book by way of seeking a counterbalance. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's like the pot calling the kettle black, or the, or should we say that the pot calling the kettle red in this case to 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 call uh, Mary bloody while the others come out with their hands clean. Um, so I, I just seek it to redress the balance. I think that her approach to trying to restore uh, England to Catholicism was heavy-handed. I don't believe that the, that the burning of heretics is the way to go. So I'm not, certainly not interested in exonerating her. But I am interested in seeing a balanced perspective. She was certainly very devout. She was certainly personally very virtuous. And she certainly believed that she was doing what she needed to do in a godly, in a godly side way. In other words, not like Henry. Uh, or Elizabeth, who were just being cynical. She was at least uh, acting upon uh, religious principle, even if I think she was wrongheaded. Would, would, would Mary have reigned for a long time, do you think, if she hadn't died early? Well, I think she, she dies in 1558. Her reign was, was so short. Um, uh, because I think that the, she, her, her, her coming to the front was very popular. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you should have seen that the the the, the, the procession uh, where where she rode into London, accompanied by Elizabeth, who is playing the good younger sister Catholic at the time, uh, and people were just thronging on the streets. It was so popular when Edward VI died, and people just thought that Merry England would return, would go back to the good old days, and this sort of blip in English history from the 1530s until until the 1550s. Was just going to be a twenty-year blip, and now we now now we're back to the good old days, and that's what that was the hope. That was what the English people wanted. And then her tragic death, uh, uh, and then Elizabeth coming to the throne was that that dashed those hopes. I I didn't know that Elizabeth professed Catholicism before she took the throne. How quickly did she switch to Protestant? Well, you know, she uh, she I, she would not have called herself a Protestant either. She was <laughs> uh, she I, she had a, a, probably to to employ a twenty first century term for Elizabeth I. She was a cafeteria Catholic. Okay. In other words, her, sen- her sensibilities for the most part were Catholic. I mean, she she had Catholics such as William Byrd and Thomas Tallis as her core composers. Um, she had a very high understanding of liturgy. But she didn't believe in the real presence and the Blessed Sacrament. She was opposed to the elevation of the host uh, during uh, the Anglican service. So she picked and choose, picked and chose. But she had, certainly had no more time for the Puritans than she did for the Catholics. How bad did the persecutions get under Elizabeth? Bloody Bess. It was. It was. Awful. I mean, it was punishable by death to be a priest. And I, and I, I do I, I punishable by death to hide a priest. So just to give a couple of examples, um, uh, the, the, the way that a priest was executed once once arrested. First of all, let's take one example. So Robert Southwell, so Robert Southall, Jesuit. He was arrested in 1592, was tortured repeatedly for three years and then hanged one and a quarter. The, I'll let your listeners do their own research, but hanging, drawing, and quartering is basically disemboweling someone while they're still alive, castrating, stripping them naked, uh, hanging them, but only symbolically, <laughs> bringing them down, still alive and still conscious, 
And then while they're still alive and conscious, uh, castrating them, disemboweling them. Uh, and the last thing they, they remove and show to the, the, the victim, who by this stage is presumably dead, mercifully, is their heart, uh, which is their phone on the fire. They're then cut in four, beheaded, and the parts of the body are hung up. And you can't think of a more barbaric way of putting people to death. This during the reign of bloody best, during the reign of Elizabeth, this was the faith of priests. Uh, and take a, a woman like St. Margaret Clitheroe, her crime was hiding priests from the authorities. She was crushed to death uh, by stones being put on her chest uh, until they, you know, not a good way to die. So these are just some examples of, of the horrific way in which uh, Queen Elizabeth treated her Catholic subjects. Why did she have Mary, Queen of Scots, killed? And Mary, Queen of Scots, was regarded by Catholics as the proper Queen of England, correct? Yeah, correct. Um, so the great holy Pope, St. Pius V, had excommunicated Elizabeth and, and called her the pretended Queen of England uh, because, uh, you know, she was the, uh, Elizabeth was the daughter of the illicit relationship between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And again, Henry, of course, had Anne Boleyn executed only a year after he'd executed Thomas More and John Fisher. But um, the, the, the Elizabeth was conceded out of wedlock. The, the divorce of Catherine of Aragon was, was illicit. Therefore, uh, the marriage with Anne Boleyn was illicit. Therefore, Elizabeth was illeg illegitimate, and therefore she could not be the legitimate uh, Queen of England. So that being so, uh, the true Queen of England was Mary, Queen of Scots, Mary Stuart. And of course, it would be her son who becomes the, the king when Elizabeth dies. Um, Elizabeth has her killed because she, she knows that. See, for instance, the, the Northern Uprising, uh, the Northern Rebellion was, was, was the, 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 north, the northern part of England, which is overwhelmingly Catholic, rose uh, in support of Mary, uh, Queen of Scots. So Elizabeth had her killed so that there could be no question of the true queen coming to the throne. Um, it's one of the many Machiavellian acts by Bloody Best, quite frankly. Huh. There's more, much more, many more stories in the book. Runs up through the centuries. We, we only got through about half of it. Uh, the, but the book is Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. Joseph Pierce, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.